tonight, live from the Lundfontaine Theater on Broadway, the 1990 Tony Awards, hosted by star of the current Broadway production of Tennessee Williams' Canada Hot Tin Roof, and Tony Award nominee, Kathleen Turner. All right, welcome back to My Little Tonys. I'm Anna. And I'm Tim. We never introduce ourselves anymore. Yeah, I feel like if at this point, well, maybe with this new season that we kind of got kicked off, we should start introducing ourselves again. Yeah, you know, our names are all over it somewhere. <laughs> um, I think, and I think it's pretty easy to tell us apart vocally. So yes, so now we are in the 90s again. Is this our fourth season? Our fourth go around i think it is i was doing i was looking at it and i think that this was because yeah our first uh, we're right about at our, actually at our two-year anniversary point yeah that's not so bad pace wise yeah <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so we're at 1990 which is another uh you know crossover year it's, it was the 1989-1990 tony season and it was broadcast June 3rd, 1990 at the Lunt Fontan Theater and broadcast by CBS. And the hostess was Kathleen Turner. Her dress is very cool. Yes. Um, I will say. It's got a lot of scribbles on it. She like, when I was watching it, I was like, what? She does. It, she had like a very strange accent when she was talking. Like, is it just me? Before there was television, before there was radio, even before there was movies, if such a thing is possible, there was the stage. And live actors performing without retakes or stunt doubles. Nothing that I know anything about. It almost felt like Eastern European in some spots. So no, it's not you. And I think <laughs> I've actually found a forum that is meaner than Broadway World. Um, is it called... Data Lounge? Yes. <laughs> um, and there was definitely um, a lot of conversation about it. And I think the nicest way that someone people have brought it up is that apparently she was a military brat. So she grew up in a lot of different places. Mm. Um but I think there's a lot of argument whether or not it is actually a real accent or not. So wait, was it just is it just about her accent in general or was it specifically about the Tonys? No, it's just about her <laughs> voice in general. OK, because like, yeah, because I was like, is it like a Christine Baranski thing where it's like trying to, you know, train the buffalo out of it? But apparently some people argue that this military brat story isn't real and that she just grew up in Missouri. So I think that, you know, it might be a mix of things. But I think that the Christ I feel like Christine Baranski is probably a good <laughs> parallel. Because I was like, I've I've watched her in things and I've never noticed that before. So I like, I don't know what her deal is. And I, I, she was currently appearing in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. So she, you know, was doing an accent for that, <laughs> presumably. Um, so who knows what impact that had on her like normal speaking voice. So the theme of this year was the year of the actor, which is like, you know, when is it not the year of the actor? Yeah. Like, call me when it's the year of the house manager. <laughs> I mean, other than that, like, this was a very sort of strictly business ceremony. Like, that was sort of the only digression we had where we had different monologue. Like, people showed up to do different monologues. Like, you had Morgan Freeman and Kevin Klein and Philip Bosco doing Shakespeare. And then you had Len Carey doing Long Day's Journey Tonight and Geraldine Fitzgerald doing The Royal Family. But other than that, this was like a very low shenanigans Tony's. It wasn't like, you know, here's the cruise ship cast of Hairspray. I mean, there wasn't even an opening number. It just no. Kathleen Turner just kind of stumbled out on stage. Yeah. <laughs> 
But like, you know, I would have liked to see I did like that there were a lot of full um, like play scene mm-hmm. performances in this. But I guess 1994 was really the first year that they started paying attention to revivals because we have no revival performances um, on this, which is like, give us a little time, you know? No, totally. But I will say, though, that um, I was like at first like being like Ugh, Shakespeare monologue. But <laughs> I feel like this really proved to me that Shakespeare can slap. Yeah. Especially Morgan Freeman. The sixth age shifts into the lean and slippered pantaloon with spectacles on nose and pouch on side. His youthful hose well saved, a world too wide for his shrunk shank. And his big manly voice turning again towards childish treble, pipes and whistles in his sound. Last scene of all that ends this strange eventful history is second childishness and mere oblivion. Sans teeth, sans eyes, sans taste, sans everything. Yeah, they did a good job, although like the microphones kept cutting out in the mm-hmm. middle, which was very unprofessional. I think this had some of the worst sound problems we've ever seen. And as far as like theater size goes, I mean, I think that in, you know, we're just a few years away from when we're uh, in Radio City Music Hall permanently, but the Lunt Fontaine looks so small and the like the upholstery is very ugly. <laughs> Yeah, I think everything just looked ugly in the 90s. So much of the ceremony was just me grappling with the fact that 1990 was 30 years ago, which I should know because that is my birth year. But it's like, <laughs> oh, 30 years ago is actually a long time ago. <laughs> but... Yeah, The one shenanigan I did love, and it's not really even a shenanigan, is that they did like in the beginning a montage of curtain calls from like, oh, yes. everything. Oh, yes, I did. I loved that. Because you can really, especially with the plays, it's like, oh, it's, there's Jason Alexander or whatever. Like you can spot a few, uh, a few people. So we had sort of a similar situation to the nine versus dream girls showdown, except I think much lower intensity. Mm-hmm. Um, so best musical front runners, we had grand hotel versus city of angels. Grand hotel had 12 nominations and five wins and city of angels had 11 nominations and six wins. And city of angels was the one that won best musical. And then going home empty handed, we had aspects of love with six nominations and zero wins and meet me in St. Louis with four nominations and zero wins. I think I probably said it's St. Louis in the last one. I like, I don't think I've ever even seen the movie. So I'm, this is not like a property I'm very familiar with. Yeah. I'm going to watch the movie before we record next time yeah come in fresh i guess we should probably do that (laughs) (laughs) um although it is kind of like a non-entity this season i know at one point when they're announcing best score they even (laughs) the presenter forgets to talk (laughs) mention it the winner is this the one more nominee uh hugh martin ralph blaine meet me in st louis Yeah, other than that, there were a few play winners, which we'll talk about next time. And then the only other musical that took anything home was Gypsy, which won two out of its five nominations. And I think sort of the big overarching theme of this season was like, thank God it's not the 80s anymore. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. because I think the year before was especially dire. It was another year where they had to eliminate categories. There, I believe there was no best book or best score race the year before. And then this year, there were like a bunch of really strong musicals. I think in terms of plays, it was even stronger. So everyone was kind of like breathing a little bit of a sigh of relief. A lot of people were like, it's cyclical. Like it's not sort of, there are a few different articles kind of talking about how things were sort of looking up. So I think there were 16 new musicals that came to Broadway this season. Um, and this article said... 
The large number is a turnaround from the last five seasons. By the beginning of September in each of those years, 10 or fewer shows were listed as definitely set to start before December 31st. There were six last year, eight in 1987, nine in 1986, eight in 1985, and 10 in 1984. Despite the figures and the stars, hardly anyone in the theater business considers the change an indication of a trend. And of the 16 shows, only two are new plays by American playwrights. One, a Broadway veteran, Larry Gelbart, and the other, a newcomer, Aaron Sorkin. (laughs) Um, This has always been a sick business, said Bernard Jacobs, president of the Schubert Organization, Broadway's biggest theater owner. If you think you can explain the cycle, you're much smarter than I am. It doesn't mean anything, Mr. Jacobs said, of the increase in the number of productions. When it's bad, it doesn't mean anything, and when it's good, it doesn't mean anything. When it's bad, people always say the theater's dying. When it's good, they say the theater's prosperous. And the truth is, the theater stumbles its way through, whether it's a better season or a poorer season, and thus it will always be. John Breglio, a theatrical lawyer involved in many Broadway productions, agreed that the business is cyclical in nature. The cycle is two or three years, and that's what we're seeing, Mr. Briglio said. Many of these shows were in formation or production two or three years ago. I don't see any particular trend. We're simply seeing kind of a blip on the screen. And I think that is actually interesting because I think as we dive into City of Angels, uh, Cy Coleman is, you know, sort of talking about how he does have like four projects kind of like on different burners progressing at different speeds. So right. for me, one of the things too that really does suggest that we're at a new sort of like turn in the woods is that actually in... In London at the time, like most of the big hits and like a lot of the fare was actually American crossovers. So we're kind of seeing this period where, you know, the British invasion in America is kind of dying down. And now there's an American invasion in the UK. (laughs) And there also is something that they talked about in that in the same article that was sort of like there's sort of this illusion of scarcity because there's so many more like longer running shows that are taking up theaters so there's just like and the Mark Hellinger had just been um, turned into a church like a few years ago and it is still Mm -hmm. a church I believe Um, yeah (laughs) so it's like it seems like there's less you know everything sort of popping and there's like less space to put different shows but um, giving the impression of a more active season but it's more like these holdovers like um, you know Cats and Phantom and Les Mis, uh, et cetera. Although, and we're just going to say... <laughs> we're about to say uh, the same thing. Go that, ahead. Uh, a chorus line just closed this year, which was like a, seen as a big... Was that not what you were going to no, say? No, that was what I was going to say. Okay. You know, I think at this point it had, had the record of longest running musical and uh, it was the end of an era. Yeah. And they also, you know, there were a couple of articles about it. They mentioned in a few places that, you know, I think in the 90s, they're just sort of starting to see like the devastation of AIDS sort of on like the theatrical future of Broadway. And like a lot of the discussion about the closing of a chorus line is like how many people involved with the original production are no longer around because of that. And how there is sort of this, like, you know, everyone's sort of like, where is everybody? Like sort of the next generation of Broadway talent was, you know, sort of struck down in its prime in like a very, you know, tragic way. And I think in the nineties, like obviously, but in 1990, obviously it's like still, going on but it's also been going on long enough that it's like you know there have been a lot of casualties already and I also think that like with that being said there is we're also on this brink of like that I think we've discussed in sort of the later 90s episodes of like the Disneyfication of Broadway Mm -hmm. um, and that sort of growth um, 
and money being pumped into Broadway in that way. So um, this is actually kind of an interesting crossroads. And I think that this year and actually the uh, 1991 were kind of seen as like America takes back Broadway and people want to see American things. And, you know, this like idea of you have to have like a huge spectacle to sell seats is sort of being dismissed. Yeah, although both uh, City of Angels and Grand Hotel did have very like important, like their physical productions were a very important part of what made them successful. Like they weren't exactly Mm -hmm. like small scale, but they're definitely not mega musicals either. You know, something that I hadn't really thought about since we've even really started this project that came up when I was doing research was Forbidden Broadway, (laughs) um, which is like this parody review. I guess this was actually its ninth year that it had been going, but there were were a lot of funny little uh, pokes and barbs at things. I think that this uh, kind of like thriving Broadway scene gave the satirists a lot to talk about. Oh, and there was also no tribute to a chorus line closing on the Tonys. Not one mention, which, right? Or did I miss it? I didn't see any. And also Rex Harrison had died a few days before this Tonys and there was no mention of that either. Strictly business. Okay, should we uh, should we get into City of Angels, the winner? Let's do it. City of Angels, opened December 11th, 1989, closed January 19th, 1992, after 879 performances, book by Larry Gelbart, music by Cy Coleman, lyrics by David Zippel, directed by Michael Blakemore, musical numbers staged by Walter Painter. And the synopsis is, first of all, this is a completely original show, not based on any um, pre-existing material, even though it is... Um, a pastiche. So the synopsis is set in 1940s Hollywood, City of Angels simultaneously tells the stories of a struggling screenwriter named Stein and his creation named Stone. The audience not only watches Stein maneuver his way through Hollywood, but is able to see his work through an onstage mini private eye movie starring Stone, a Raymond Chandler-esque gumshoe detective. The show is color-coded with the real-life passages staged in vivid colors and the movie world in black and white and features a jazzy score. The nominations were Best Musical, Best Book of a Musical, Best Score, Best Performance by a Leading Actor in a Musical by for James Naughton, Best Performance by a Featured Actress in a Musical for Randy Graff, Best Scenic Design, Best Performance by a Leading Actor for Greg Edelman, Best Performance by a Featured Actor for Rene Aubert-Jonois, Best Direction of a Musical, <laughs> Best Costume Design, and Best Lighting Design, and it won Musical, Book, Score, James Naughton and Randy Graff both won, and Scenic Design. So yeah, so this... Uh, this one edged out Grand Hotel. I mean, it won all the big prizes. I think Grand Hotels were like a more minor. And I also think that weirdly, though, I feel like Grand Hotels the show that maybe gets talked about more. Well, it ran. It was a bigger hit. It ran a little bit longer, I believe. Um, or in you know my book, that's like the biggest hits and the biggest flops. That's one. It, the one it has is the hit for this season. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I do feel like that commercial that has been like, going around. <laughs> oh, we'll talk about that next yeah. time. <laughs> um, the backstory on this one is so Cy Coleman was having like a little bit of a renaissance. He had obviously been around since um, the early '60s. There was a very well received off Broadway revival of Sweet Charity. He had just come back with a new. Broadway musical called Welcome to the Club that was a huge flop. Um, I had never heard of it. So the roots of this come many years earlier when he and Michael Stewart had been talking to Mickey Spillane about doing a Mike Hammer musical, which was like sort of his trademark character. Mike Hammer, he's a private detective. He don't go looking for trouble, but somehow trouble. Well, you know the line. Stacey Keats stars in Murder Takes All Sunday. Um, And then he kind of shelved it for a few years and... 
Then he reached out to Larry Gilbert, which, if you remember, the two of them were up against each other in 1963 um, in the Forum versus Little Me, which is also something that I feel like we don't talk about that much with regards to the Tonys. That's kind of fun is that like people like it's such a small group of creatives that like people will be competing against each other one year and then like working together, you know, 10 Mm -hmm. years later. Um, or even one year later, did Tommy Toon do Will Rogers Follies? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there you go. Um, which I feel like you don't see as much in um, other mediums. They reached out to Larry Gelbar and then they recruited this guy, David Zippel, who was sort of the only like unknown quantity. He was like, I think he was still in his 20s when they started working with him. And they were like, well, let's get him in on spec and like have him write a few songs with Psy. And they have this very funny quote from him where he's like, he low-key calls him a hoarder, where he's like, (laughs) we worked in Cy's Midtown office, which was buried in an avalanche of sheet music and piles of files. It made me think of the Collier brothers, and it looked like it hadn't been dusted since the day Elvis got his draft notice, but I loved every second (laughs) I spent there. And for those of you who don't know, the Collier brothers is like a very famous pair of hoarders who both like died gruesomely in their piles of junk. So that's like a very intense... I mean, I you know, I think it's kind of a joke, but it's also like uh, it's, you know, it gives it paints a very vivid picture. Yeah. And it's kind of funny because while while Cy Coleman had been around forever, like he didn't. I think, think in that same article, he kind of talks about how he's kind of like drifted through having partners and uh, whatnot. So it was nice to see them kind of like get along. And I feel like a lot of the lyricists he had worked with, specifically uh, Carolyn Lee and Dorothy Fields, I feel like he had been especially Carolyn Lee, um, who he said that they had legendary fights like Gilbert and Sullivan. Um, <laughs> yes, we, uh, which we covered <laughs> covered in uh, the Little Me episode. Yes. I think that it is like definitely an old school mentality of like the composer who, um, you know, is just kind of works with whoever. I feel like the fact that he's not um, necessarily at this point, you know, has like the composing team that he's been working with forever and ever, but... Um, I guess, you know, the next year he was working with um, Comden and Green again. So, yeah, he's a he's a real chameleon, I think, um, almost to his detriment. Yeah. So originally they so they were working on this show that was sort of like a spoof, like a film noir spoof. um, And the original title was Death is for Suckers, um, which is not a great title. But um, so they were working on it for a few months and Larry Gilbart was like, this is boring. Like, I'm not feeling this. I'm going to like go home for a few months and kind of sit on it. And then um, he called them and he was like, I came up with this framing device. I guess it's a framing device where it's like, you know, introducing the idea that it's like about a writer who is adapting like his own book to the screen. And this was inspired by his experiences working on the movie Tootsie, which he um, co-wrote the screenplay for. That was like a very tormented process, like a million people worked on that screenplay and he has a quote where he's like I there were some collaborators that I met for the first time when we were like on stage at the Oscars so uh so yeah so that was sort of like a way for him to sort of channel his frustration with the film industry and that ended up being sort of like the spark that it needed to like get him um more engaged in the project which I think is a great idea yeah and as far as that goes like I think that one thing that you know 
universally people are are saying in their coverage of it is that this is like such an amazing book and like I think that like my first thought of it I'm like oh my god what a tired idea but even in the LA Times review um, it starts with the wonder of City of Angels is in how its creators took such a seemingly tired idea and worked it into such clever entertainment and I think that so much of that is Larry Gelbart's like book that people just can't seem to get enough of. <laughs> I know it made me want to uh, see a production because I think you know you're really only getting part of the story on the cast album which is like it's a fun cast album but you know it is it's very jazzy in a way that um is a little bit samey after a while Mm -hmm. but I did think it was interesting that like it's not really a pastiche score because Cy Coleman like does come from this jazz background and he like was a jazz pianist in the 40s so he said so he was actually like a child prodigy and was doing like uh was like a concert pianist um and sort of rebelled Um, and was like, I'm going to get into jazz. So he said, I had just left the high school of music and art and had to decide whether to continue doing the same things I had already done. To support myself, I got jobs playing popular music in little bistros and became sort of a society favorite. MCA wanted me to be the new Eddie Duchin. Duchin? (laughs) I don't know who that is. (laughs) But, But that didn't interest me, so I gravitated toward jazz. I played at Bop City with Ella Fitzgerald and Illinois Jacquet and worked with various trios and found myself on television. Out of all that emerged a solo career, though my approach at the piano was kind of beboppy. My sound was fuller. To put it brazenly, I wanted to do something that I think I'm uniquely qualified to do in the theater, which is present jazz as opposed to pastiche or the kind of choreographed jazz I've written for other shows. By real jazz, I mean music whose rhythmic phrases you can't describe, but when you're snapping fingers to it, you say, this swings. <laughs> That's so cute. And from that same piece, I feel like they make this claim that I don't know how easy you can substantiate it that this was the first hit Broadway musical to have a full blown jazz score. I think that, um, actually, I don't know. I don't want to, I mean, if they said it, it's a, it's a big, it's it, a big claim. It is but. a big claim. Well, he seems to think that it was the first time that it used like quote unquote real jazz. I mean, it's funny, though, because at times, like, I do feel like it's... If I wasn't reading this, I don't think I would be like, oh, this is real jazz. (laughs) Yeah, but, you know, I'm not necessarily uh, qualified to assess that. (laughs) Yeah, so if there are any jazz experts out there listening, tell us what you think. So they also had part of the scores that they have these... The Angel City Four, which are these um, vocalists who kind of do, like, the zubidooza, like... Yeah. So apparently, like, Cy Coleman really fought hard to have them be studio singers and not, like, Broadway performers who sort of doubled other roles because he was like, I'm going to be having them do, like, very tough and, like, precise vocalizations and they need to, like, be on top of it, like, be the best, be the best at that and not have to, like, worry about being, like, good tap dancers also or whatever. (laughs) Not that there's Mm -hmm. tap dancing in the show, but, um, which I thought was an interesting detail. And I believe he won, he won on that one. Yeah, no, and I feel like that harkens us back to our our last episode talking about promises, promises of, you know, having these people who maybe are outside of the theatrical sphere kind of adding in their own thing. Yes, I was actually thinking about the promises, promises pit singers after we had just (laughs) talked about how nobody really, um, 
picked up on that trend. I feel like that's also a good point that you raised because I think um, in Frank Rich's review, he like gave it a glowing review. And then like in one, like the last paragraph, I feel like he like listed everything that he like disliked about it. <laughs> and I think that one thing that either he mentioned or someone else mentioned is that they're like, eh, there could have been more dancing. Yeah. And I think like talking about the reviews, they were mostly very good reviews. And a lot of them seemed like they were less about the show and more just like a sigh of relief that there were like still good American musicals being made Mm -hmm. you know not to be like good American musicals but like you know after a a decade of um, British invasion it's kind of like no this is still like an art form that's kind of thriving this side of the pond but actually there was a clause in their recording contract with RCA that said specifically if Frank Rich didn't give it a good review that they could refuse to record it Um, So they ended up, after he did give it a good review, they ended up taking it to Columbia instead to be like, because they like tried to get him to take it out. And they were like, no, this was an album that was actually um, recorded over the course of several weeks. They didn't do like, because they, you know, wanted it to be very precise. They didn't do the typical sort of marathon session. And I think that, you know, thinking a few years in advance, like I think that this episode that we're recording now is kind of funny because, you know, Andrew Lloyd Webber does sort of attempt to tackle with like a very similar um, sort of material with Sunset Boulevard. And I think that like part of why this is so successful is that um, you have this like very American book writer, screenwriter writing the script who, um, you know, basically lived through, you know, seeing these movies in theaters and, you know, has had a presence in Hollywood and also a songwriter who has had a career writing sort of like jazz standards. And, you know, it just is like not to be like, I feel like now it's like complicated, but it is like a very like it makes you proud to be an American. I mean, that is a good point with Sunset Boulevard that I never thought of is that, you know, maybe he just doesn't have like the kind of edge to sort of tackle that kind of material. And he sort of is like overly romantic in a way that like doesn't work for this kind of thing. I feel like we didn't really talk a lot about Larry Gelbart when we did Forum because there were so many other important people involved um, and there was a lot of stuff sort of celebrating him. And I thought there was this very cute sidebar in this profile of him. Humor is fun for Gelbart, as his friends well know. He is a member of an informal club called Yenem Velt, Yiddish for the Other World or Paradise. He, Mel Brooks, Dom DeLuise, Carl Reiner, Norman Lear, and their spouses get together for dinner and often go to Palm Springs together. Sometimes, Brooks says, on one of those evenings, I feel like a matador, like I've killed a bull. I think I've said something that definitely puts an end to the evening. No one will top this. And I walk away and throw my cape over my shoulders. And 10 seconds later, Larry comes back with something funnier. Another really funny quote about him is that there's kind of this like hard-boiled, like, profile of him that's like uh you know written in the film noir way um but he describes getting a broadway musical ready to open is like trying to housebreak a dinosaur (laughs) but an amendment there was a brit on the creative team michael blakemore the director who was um the director of noises off 10 no not even 10 maybe like six years earlier so it wasn't uh fully um you know an us versus them type of thing and it's interesting because he doesn't seem like maybe the right choice for or he is quoted in the piece saying i actually loathe musicals usually and i've never thought of myself as a musical director but i got the script and was delighted by it so i rang the producers up and said i'd love to do it 
He said, I also wanted to prove that it is possible to spend 4.5 million bucks to get a musical show on and by planning it carefully and really thinking hard before we get into rehearsals, not to get it on stage by a process of trial and error and bloodshed and hysteria and guys getting sacked and me getting sacked and getting replaced and maybe getting engaged again. I think that's all rubbish. So I feel like he probably had been talking to Larry Gelbart about his Tootsie experience. I I also think that this is like we're getting into sort of the last period where the people who are around in the golden age of Broadway are like still working and you have like a couple of holdovers like Candor and Ebb who are still kind of churning them out. But um, I guess Cy Coleman still is. But like I think by like the late 90s, it's pretty much sort of like the new generation, you know, taking the, the banner over. And uh, to amend what you said, Blake Moore was born in Sydney, Australia. Because oh. I do, thi- but then he had a long career at uh, the National Theater. But he talks about like seeing the Maltese Falcon. Like, in, I guess he and Larry Gelbart are the same age. And he's like, I was seeing the Maltese Falcon in Australia when I was 15. And Larry wow, Gelbart was seeing it. Wow, he's still alive. He's 92. 92. Way to go, Michael Blake Moore. So there's a couple of sort of notable people in the cast in small roles. You had Rachel York early in her career. You had Carolee Carmelo. Uh, I think she was in the ensemble and she was also like the swing for all of the female roles. What else? I know we sort of going back to the pastiche thing going into this. I really sort of only knew the big songs. And one of them is the kind of like salty broad. You can always count on me. I choose the kind who cannot introduce the girl he's with. There are lots of smirking motel clerks who call me Mrs. Smith. But I made a name with hotel detectives who break down doors. Guess who they expect to see? You can always count on better large amount of. You can always count on me. There's a song from Seesaw that Cy Coleman also did the score for that's almost the same song called, my God, what is it called? (laughs) Nobody Does It Like Me. That's what it is. And so I try to be a lady. I'm no lady. I'm a broad. And when I talk like I'm a lady, what I sound like is a broad. If there's a wrong way to get a guy, the right way to lose a guy, nobody They're very, they're like, and he even had Randy Graff sing it in her audition. And he was like, I'm going to write you almost the same song, which is fine. Like, I'm fine with an unlimited um, number of songs like that. But, you know, it's like, don't think we didn't see what you're doing there. (laughs) That's funny. Yeah, um, that's probably actually one of my, if not my favorite song on the recording. Me too. Oh, and I, there was one other thing. This is from an article about um, Welcome to the Club. Or wait, is that what it's called? Yeah. So he, where he sort of talks about 
what we get every now and then with like these people who have been around for many generations of Broadway sort of talking about what's changed now. This was something I hadn't heard before. He said, when they changed the tax law to make it much harder to make to take theatrical investments as a loss, it hurt us a lot, he says. I don't think the effect was ever intended to cut down on funding of the arts, but the new rules had one of those residual effects that I just hope and pray they will look at in Congress and change. So that's something that was new information to me that they had like changed some tax things where it was like, if you invest in something and you lose money, you can't really write it off in the same way that you used to. Oh, interesting. I mean, uh, yeah, because in the rest of that article, he goes on to talking about how like, you know, the press like loves to like, loves when there's a flop and like Mm -hmm. run with it and, you know, make a big deal out of it. But in that way, it's sort of hurting the arts. And then the third reason he gives, which is one we've heard before, is um, no more sort of mainstream pop crossover so like people don't already come into the theater knowing the songs and they're like well what you know I can't how many of that after reading that I had kind of went back to um, one of the um, masterworks the Sony masterworks people who I guess is like a big executive there talks about his experience like having listened to the tape a bunch of times and Mm -hmm. then coming to New York when he was 17 and like hearing it for the first time which I think I really you know I feel like that is like so much of my early Broadway experiences and I think that even now it's taken a few years for me to be able to go into um, seeing a a show that I like don't already know the score and like being able to figure out if I like it or not. Mm -hmm. No totally and they do talk about how like it did open relatively early in the season it opened in December so they do talk about how that may have helped it come Tony time that like the the cast album was already out like around the time that people were making nominations and that sort of because the Grand Hotel cast recording I think was very delayed Um, there Mm -hmm. I mean I think we'll get into it but I think there were a lot of problems also fun Easter egg I don't know if anyone uses that term anymore but in the Greg Araki movie totally fucked um, which is sort of like a um, you know a takeoff of like Godard's masculine feminine but like set in like uh, LA in the 90s like um, one of the scenes like takes place in front of this huge City of Angels uh, billboard just like advertising the cast album I love that I mean it's a cool uh, it's cool like art like uh thinking of the art like I feel like there is this like who framed Roger Rabbit connection to it or totally because I think that movie came out just a few years before that like I wonder if that the popularity of that um kind of brought in this like thought of like oh yeah now's the time for film noir I mean I think there there is sort of like thinking about later in the 90s there was also this kind of like swing revival and uh Mm. like pinup style and all of that like I think they were sort of ahead of the curve with this aesthetic coming back in fashion in fashion should we talk about the performance as a segue to talking about the performance i feel like you know everyone talks about like the tech like about how it's like takes place half in black and white and half in color and for some reason i had imagined the technology for that being extremely complicated <laughs> but when you see the tony performance you actually just realize that like the sets are like in black and white yeah. and <laughs> people are wearing kind of like grayscale clothing and it's not like painted faces and right. crazy stuff it's not like a pleasantville uh... yeah <laughs> What do they do? They did a little bit of a medley. They did What You Don't Know About Women. What you don't know about women. What you don't know about women. Could fill a shelf of books. You are the type of man who looks for understanding lovers. But never understands the girl who lies beneath the covers. 
And You're Nothing Without Me, which was one of the songs that I came in knowing. You gloating ignoramus. You haven't any shame. Hey, I'm a famous Seamus. And most people don't know your name. You're nothing without me. A no one who goes. great good choices and i think that it really illustrates what's happening because like i think in both of them it's like the sort of play between the two worlds i mean i don't know how much of that is really you know i think that there are definitely probably scenes where like you wouldn't get that sort of um interplay but i think it successfully explains like how the show works yeah no totally and also now that i'm looking back at my notes from the tonys i forgot that um when cy coleman won for score he thanked Larry and David, but it sounded like he said Larry David, and I was oh like, "Oh my god, I did Larry that David too. work on this show?" Larry David and I set out to do something new and innovative, and I believe we accomplished it by the amount of fantastic collaboration we have with everybody that was associated with the show. And also, when Larry Gelbart wins for book, he was like, "They asked us not to be boring." The producer asked us not to be boring. Uh, he sent no instructions, unfortunately. Multiple people mentioned that they only had 30 seconds for their speeches, which it seemed like they were a little salty about that. Which I think that we'll probably get into this later, but there is like a very notable person who goes off on a rant while actually presenting, but we'll talk about that later. <laughs> um, one other thing that I thought about when I was peeing, <laughs> or should I say uh, that I thought about when we were on our break, is um, isn't this the year that Dick Tracy came out also, the movie? Oh, interesting. Yeah, it was 1990. It came out in June. So it came out like a few weeks after the Tonys. So, you know, it's uh, everyone loves this little film noir uh, gumshoe redux. I'm not complaining about it. I'm nothing without you. Without you, I like what it takes. Unless we're combined, I have half a mind to blow all my chances and breaks. I'm nowhere without you. Without you is where I went wrong. The circles for using and using our smarts. And greatness can come on the sum of our parts. Okay, so then the second and last show we're talking about today is Aspects of Love. <laughs> I feel like I can't say it in a normal way. It's a very um, weird title when you actually think about it. It's a weird title. Everything about it is very like, well, duh, especially like <laughs> love changes everything. It's like, no shit. <laughs> I don't know. It, you know, but we'll, we'll get into it. So Aspects of Love opened on April 8th, 1990 and closed on March 2nd, 1991 after 377 performances. Um, it had music by Andrew Lloyd Webber, lyrics by Don Black and Charles Hart, book adapted by Andrew Lloyd Webber, 
and it was based on the novel Aspects of Love by David Garnett, and it was directed by Trevor Nunn and choreographed by uh, Gillian Lynn. Gillian, Gillian Lynn? I that's a great question. I think it's Gillian. Gillian Lynn. Aspects of Love is a complex love story that takes place over 15 years and is set in France. Rose Viebert, a, pro- a prominent actress, is having an affair with Alex, a young 17-year-old soldier. While visiting Alex's uncle's villa in the mountains, Rose subsequently falls in love with Alex's uncle, George. George and Rose get married and have a daughter named Jenny. When Alex returns from service 15 years later, Jenny falls falls for him. Following George's death, Alex must decide whether to do the unspeakable and be with his cousin or go with George's friend, Julieta. And it was nominated for Best Musical, Best Book of a Musical, Best Original Score, Best Performance by a Featured Actor in a Musical, Best Performance by a Featured Actress in a Musical, and Best Direction of a Musical. And it won none. Yeah, so this is... uh... This is Andrew Lloyd Webber's take on a little night music, I guess. Which is interesting because I hadn't realized that um, Trevor Nunn had just... I think that 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 British production of a little night music with uh, Judi Dench had just happened. Yeah, so there was a 1989 revival of a little night music, which I guess actually I'm, I'm <laughs> I think I'm trying to like prove something that I don't actually think is true because I think the didn't this he sh- direct the revival? The twenty, the two thousand nine revival. I guess all I'm saying is that a little night music is in the air while. Oh, um, for sure. This is all happening. Well, everyone after after the eighties, everyone was really ready to take Andrew Lloyd Webber down a peg, and you know what? So am I. <laughs> we've uh, you know we've been too nice to him so far, and I'm ready. <laughs> I'm ready to really rip into this one. First of all, this cast album is so goddamn long. It's like one of the longest. I think they I think they like did an extended edition where they like added cut material back in, but it is and this is the London cast. Did they make a Broadway cast album? They must have, but I feel like I just listened to the London. If it is, it's not on Spotify. Yeah, but it is two hours and 18 minutes long, which is way, way, way too long. (laughs) Like, you know, I was sort of looking up like other, you know, very long cast albums, like even like Les Mis Live and Unabridged is only two hours and 14 minutes long. The only ones that were longer are Hamilton and Rent that I could find. And this is not either of those. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I, it really surprises me that there wasn't a uh, U.S. recording, especially with how popular the British one was. But and, you know, I feel like releasing cast albums is kind of Andrew Lloyd Webber's way. <laughs> it's of, his favorite thing to do. Yeah, <laughs> um, but I'm not seeing any, but I we may be wrong on that. Um, but, you know, it's interesting. Speaking of, you know, the British... Uh, the British production is that there was kind of a there was a little bit of drama about the casting for that that carried over from Phantom of the Opera which basically was like they made a deal when Phantom was coming over they made a deal with Equity to to just bring Michael Crawford over and I think they had even like cast an American Christine and then he was like just kidding I want to bring Sarah Brightman over Um, and Equity was like no one because they had like already had auditions and because she wasn't a big enough, you know, she wasn't like a name. Um, and he was like, well, I'm just going to cancel the production totally. So they came, they made a deal where he could, Sarah Brightman could come over and do Phantom. But for his next show, which was still, you know, as yet, like, unknown, they had, he had to cast an American actress, an unknown American actress in the British version, um, who's Anne Crum, who also, she ended up coming <laughs> over. <laughs> she ended up coming over um, 
to the Broadway production. And side note, she had an onstage accident on a moving walkway that uh, damaged her foot forever. And I think that that was still in the UK, but like um, apparently like the mountains like come in um, and it her foot just got like crushed by it, which Yeesh. is very unfortunate and also completely unnecessary. I think that that's like a huge criticism that so many people had with this is that even Andrew Lloyd Webber himself talks about how like this is like one of his chamber musicals, but yet there still were these like outlandish, crazy set changes and think uh, totally unnecessary things. And everyone, everyone did not like it. <laughs> people had a lot of very mean things to say about it and one thing that I noticed that kept coming up in the reviews that I did not like was that they were like there are you know there are all these scandalous versions of love like uh you know pedophilia incest and lesbians (laughs) it's like you don't you don't need to bring lesbians into this (laughs) like uh you know I know it was 1990 but um it's not the same thing yeah so basically they were like this is his first a musical about sort of like regular people and not these like oversized figures um, like, you know, his biblical musicals or like something like Evita um, or Phantom or, you know, Cats or Starlight Express where they're literally not people. But everyone was like, you tried it and it's bad. I mean, it's almost comical when you're listening to it because I think that you know there's like a 10 minute song being like love changes everything and then like it's like something different for like 10 minutes and then like they just like reset like reiterate that like love you know the same point that they made previously and it's like ah. i know and i know that love changes everything is like the big song from it but all i can hear is chariots of fire when i listen to it it's like it's very chariots of fire that's so interesting because whenever i hear it all i can think about is oh happy we from candide Here's an article that was just basically shit-talking him, I think, in anticipation of this coming to Broadway. Mark Stein, the musical theater critic of the British newspaper The Independent, has no doubt why his music is so phenomenally popular. There are at least three reasons I can think of. Andrew doesn't write music for the head. His music is broadly emotional, a lush, swamping sound. He has none of that embarrassment that a clever man feels for a silly or childish idea. His shows have no lyrical wit or character development, but remember, people who come to his shows are not in the main regular theater goers. He gives them an experience, nonstop wall-to-wall music they cannot get anywhere else. Second, his themes are not British-centered in the sense that even Stephen Sondheim's shows are American. Even with Sunday in the Park with George, you're not absolutely sure whether the park in question is La Grande Jatte or Central Park. Americanisms, the musicals, the apotheosis of American culture, are not exportable at the moment, but neither are Britishisms. The point is that Andrew Lloyd Webber has avoided an exclusively British feel to his shows, except with Jeeves, and that was a failure. Third, I would agree with the view that Lloyd Webber is sort of a Steven Spielberg of musical theater. Just as Spielberg's movies confront and play upon primitive fears and ideas we have had since childhood, so do Lloyd Webber's musicals hark back to the nursery, special effects and all. And so later in that... uh, same article, they mentioned that he loves Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> like, I know. <laughs> I like love how they like made it an adjective. It's like the Thatcher-loving Lloyd Webber. <laughs> and then when they bring up the Steven Spielberg thing, he's like, I love Steven Spielberg and I'd love to work with him someday. But you said that his his uh, autobiography ends right before this, which is very funny. Yeah, I know. And like basically in it, he's just like, and I'm happy that this book ends here. And it's like, we're the one writing it. It's very like the rest is still unwritten, but yeah. it's not like this is really like the beginning of his fall from grace. And he's like, well, I'm just going to end it when I'm at the top. Well, he kind of says there was uh, I decided 
decided to give up alcohol, sold my wine cellar, and went back to my roots with School of Rock, based on the Jack Black Mike White movie. It is the first of my musicals to world premiere on Broadway since Jesus Christ Superstar. I produced it myself as well as composing the score, and it is my first Broadway show to go into profit since Phantom. Only three of my seven shows since Phantom have made Broadway. My small chamber musicals, Aspects of Love, The Woman in White, and Sunset Boulevard, which despite winning the Tony for Best Musical and Best Score and receiving some of the best reviews of my career, failed to recoup due to circumstances that would take up a far chunk of my continuation of my saga. So Wait, so does he not talk about Sunset Boulevard in the no. book? <gasps> Andrew! Wow. So I think that, yeah, this basically just ends with Phantom, um, and then he kind of touches on winning the Oscar for Evita, um, for the new song in Evita. Also, it's funny that he's like, Sunset Boulevard won all these awards, but it's like, because there literally was like nothing else eligible. <laughs> <laughs> It's funny because I'm going to plug um, Michael Riedel's new book, uh, One Singular Sensation, that talks about Broadway in the 90s, but he has a lengthy chapter about the life of Sunset Boulevard, and I will say that so many of these like sort of problems that we're talking about with this are just amplified um, and put on such a larger scale with Sunset Boulevard, where um, I thought that this was sort of interesting, this article where they talk about how much of a huge flop it was when aspects of love opened on broadway last year with 12 million already earned in advanced ticket sales the expectation was that a new hit was in the making the show was written by andrew lloyd weber who seemed flop proof but things did not work out as expected despite the heavy advanced booking aspects closed on saturday night after a 10-month run at the broadhurst theater far from being a hit the show lost its entire eight million dollar investment making it perhaps the greatest flop in broadway history until until Sunset Boulevard. Um, <laughs> Mr. Lloyd Webber's crash landing has brought with it some gloomy end-of-era ruminations. The question is being asked whether the show's failure indicates that the ex- expensive, overproduced British me- musical extravaganza has lost its luster with audiences, and if it has, what does that portend for Miss Saigon, Cameron McIntosh's even more expensive extravaganza, which is scheduled to open on Broadway in a few weeks? Um, Anyone familiar with Broadway might also wonder how the show, which after all did run nearly a year, often to full or nearly full houses, could have lost all that money. Just how well does a show have to do to succeed? And then Bernard Jacobs says, I like to quote Oscar Hammerstein. He said, the number of people who will not go to a show that they do not want to see is unlimited. There has to be a perception out there that this is a show people want to see. And it's clear that aspects never achieve that perception. So um, the cost of a musical these days, he said, would run between 300000 and 350000 a week. Thus, given a gross of half a million a week and a profit of 150000 to 200000 a week, it would take from 40 to 54 weeks of sold-out houses to return an investment of $8 million, a performance that Aspects of Love decidedly did not turn in. I think that with someone like Andrew Lloyd Webber, he could have a huge flop that loses a lot of money, but like you wouldn't necessarily know unless you're like looking at the books and 
It's also just interesting to see so many people buying advanced tickets just because they recognize his name. But then Mm -hmm. um, once it opens and there isn't any word of mouth, it just totally kind of flounders. Well, and I also think some of it has to do like his ability to bounce back from all of his flops is that like sort of throughout the 80s, he was able to take ownership of his shows in a way that a lot of composers don't where he sort of became like a full service production machine and, you know, had like his, you know, really useful group or whatever, where it's like, and that's why Phantom has been open for so long is that is because he is worth so much money. And it's like, even if it's, you know, not necessarily making a profit, it's like, um, it's worth it just for sort of just the bragging rights to be like, this is the longest running show on Broadway to like keep it's such a like a small percentage of the amount of money, the relative amount of money that the Andrew Lloyd Webber machine is like churning out. And I think that sort of has is what has separated him um, kind of financially and why he is so much richer than not that that's the only reason why he's so much richer than someone like Sondheim. But like he is very much a businessman on top of being a composer. And that's like that's sort of really um, this is the decade where I think that really starts to come into play. Yeah, because at this point, people were estimating that he's worth like $250 million. Um, And I think that like what you had read earlier answers a lot of questions for me. And I think that in a certain way, he and Frank Wildhorn are really similar, where like just because there isn't, their shows aren't complicated and it is sort of just like things that sound like pretty emotional music. Like they are able to have these huge long runs like throughout Asia and like around the world. Whereas like I think that translating a Sondheim show you know something like Company which um, Andrew Lloyd Webber does make a dig at here he's like oh like Sondheim was 42 when he wrote Company and I'm 42 when I'm writing this so like I have a long way to go yeah Frank Wildhorn I haven't (laughs) heard that name in years (laughs) (laughs) yeah no it is this like really interesting thing to see like the season before someone like Cy Coleman have this show that I'm sure is probably not much worse or, you know, is probably has its problems different than this show, but, you know, close after 32 performances where like this probably if it wasn't for Andrew Lloyd Webber would have closed probably in that period, too. Totally. And I saw what did I there was a lot of sort of rumbling about that Broadway was kind of in a dire financial future. So this is from sort of one of the overall season articles um, where you sort of start to see the warning bells ringing in a way that I think we heard more in 1996 where they were talking about how it was like such a great season, but like nobody could afford tickets to go see anything. The colossal box office failure of Jerome Robbins's Broadway, which has announced a September closing with what its producers say will be a $4 million deficit, is another watershed. But one that says more about the economic crises of Broadway than it does about the quality of the show or the state of the musical theater. When a Tony award-winning musical can run nearly as many performances as such Robbins shows as Gypsy, High Button Shoes, and West Side Story did in their original Broadway engagements, played to large audiences most of the time, and still have red ink to rival that of Annie too, it means that production costs are out of control. And high production costs mean high ticket prices with which the producers attempt to recoup them. Jerome Robbins' Broadway was the first musical to have a $60 top ticket, extending from the orchestra into the rear mezzanine, but the public wasn't necessarily buying. The $60 tickets were frequently marked down through discount coupons and at the half-price ticket booth in Duffy Square. It's a bad win coming. Oh, and it is interesting, too, because um, 
I guess this is not really that relevant, but in the Michael Riedel book that I was just talking about, he um, mentions how Garth Drabinsky like had a production of Aspects of Love like open in Canada for like a long, long time. And I think that so much of it was like this shysty like business um, dealings and like being like, oh, well, like making it seem like to people that they're like getting some special sort of like service um, rather than like just letting a bad show close and not like trying to trick people into like paying a lot of money for something that is just not very good um do we have anything else to say about any of these any of the show the performance i think was very much what you would expect there's a lot of people kind of running around and like hugging and nuzzling each other (laughs) in different combinations they sing love changes everything and uh maybe it does yeah love changes everything time heals everything I know time heals everything it could mop the floor with love changes everything yeah it's not just like I don't know there's something like incredibly banal about um like all of the lyrics in this there's another one what is the other song in it that's sort of like a refrain seeing is believing that's what it is Mm -hmm. it's like shut the fuck up (laughs) I I'm in no mood for this today when I hear Michael Ball singing I can't not think of Les Mis um it's just like he has such a unique voice that like and I had listened to that cast recording so much growing up that it just like hearing his voice sends chills <laughs> down my spine and in doing research for this we came across a website called justball.net um, <laughs> that um, has been online since uh, the 27th of June 2000 and it looks like the web design has not been updated since then and we respect you and we fear you whoever yeah. is maintaining that website but like it's funny seeing all the things that like refer to him as a teen heartthrob and it's like him <laughs> i know the 80s were different but uh all right i feel like i'm uh i'm getting too mean in this one yeah. we haven't been really mean in so long i you know sometimes you have to like just bleed the poison out a little bit <laughs> which is funny too because i feel like i had really come around to andrew lloyd webber in my spotify top songs of the year there were there was a lot of cats representation this year so no me too i absolutely have come around on him which is why it feels good to uh, have <laughs> one to really take out my my rage on i don't think this one i mean i don't know i mean the music was like nice but it it didn't really uh do much for me but I there are plenty of um, Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals that I do enjoy some of which we've covered and some of which we will cover in the future I'm like you know not to uh, get anyone's hopes up about how soon we're going to be doing this but I am always thinking about our cats episode our future cats episode I think that one's going to be really fun I'm ready to go to the map for that one, mm-hmm. but not for this one. No. Yeah. And I also just think that this is one for years, like I've known existed, but had no idea like what its deal was. And and its deal is pretty much what the title uh, tells you. Yeah. Aspects of love. Aspects of love. And I think that just, you know, something that I feel like we say every episode, but it's, I think that it is interesting how many different times it can be reiterated that like a novel is not the best adaptation material for a musical. No, and a lot of people commented that the original novel is not even very good. Like, yeah. not Andrew Lloyd Webber. He was like, it's a little gem. But everyone is like, a mediocre. <laughs> like, <laughs> so, you know, you're kind of setting yourself up for for failure there. And also, a lot of people commented on uh, his misogyny that comes out in this one that you see um, pretty much everywhere. He's horny. He's a horny little misogynist. And uh, you see it. You see it all over the place. Yes, love, love changes Live or perish in its grave. Love will never, never let 
Um, okay, is that? I think that's I think, all. <laughs> I think that's all. So next time, we got Grand Hotel. We got Mimi in St. Louis. We got Gypsy. We got a bunch of little plays um, to talk about. And I think that's it. I, I mean, this isn't like a super, this isn't, you know, a 1969 situation. It's a little bit thin on the ground, but everyone's taking what they can get after the 80s. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, and we will have make mention of uh, the notorious flop Annie to Miss Hannigan's Revenge. <laughs> uh, even though it didn't, did it ever? It closed out of town, right? It closed out of town, yeah. Clo- so, but we, you know, we have to mention it. Yeah. Um, okay. So you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. You can email us at mylittletoniespodcast at gmail.com. You cannot support us on Patreon anymore. <laughs> um, but, you know, thank you for thinking of us. And uh, and we'll see you next time. Okay. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.